Hey everybody, welcome to episode 96 of Literary Disco, Why We Write About Ourselves. Today, despite the fact that your three hosts are all writers who met in a creative writing program, we will read our first writing advice book. The book is Why We Write About Ourselves, 20 Memoirists memoirists on why they expose themselves and others in the name of literature. Edited by Meredith Marin and featuring such luminaries as Cheryl Strayed and Edwidge Dondicott and Edmund White, Why We Write About Ourselves is a collection of essays that serves as a how-to and wherefore of the memoir. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Yo, guys. Hello. Good afternoon. That, Good evening. That was the most well-written intro you have ever done. And <laughs> in, the only time you only did one take. So I'm very yeah. impressed. I, this is our 96th episode. I don't, I don't know if Ryder has ever written an intro before. I've always done it. It was good. Thanks. He yeah. was inspired by the book. You got where This is. I think you're aware. Yeah, I think that's the only reason you guys think it was well written because I I, I usually just have notes and what we've no we've done almost a hundred episodes. This is you every time. Hey everybody, this is. That is so not true. That is so That is, so that is definitely true. happened a few times. But out of 96 episodes, I think I've been pretty on the ball. Wow. I bet wow. Tucker, our lovely producer, could put together a file a of, super uh, cut. of cut-out openings. Yeah, that, that's just writer moaning in exasperation. Oh, you want me to do a whole intro? I didn't even prepare for that. I figured, okay. Hey, no. <laughs> Fuck. Let me take that back. We'll begin today's episode with a Tucker. Let's take that back. <laughs> and then we will read three nonfiction pieces from Truman Capote. A Christmas Memory. Actually, I should have remembered the name of these. What are they called? After noticing. Wow. Joining me, as always, are Neville. Wow. Not Nevelist. Naval Gazer? Anybody else want to take her? Maybe when we reach 100 episodes, one of you guys become the new intro. <laughs> no, thanks. Because we're all co-hosts. I'm, it's not like I'm the host and you guys just happen to be here. This is, you know, it's, you guys can do this too. I was just saying. No, no, right. I mean, we all have You seem to have right. picked up some skills from, uh, from the book. I was on mission no, I, there. You know, you know what's happened is that I've been promoting this movie for the last two weeks and doing interviews and talking. And so I'm probably just in the zone of, of self-promotion. Yeah. Well, and, gross, and in that zone, tell zone. us... Tell us where the movie's going to be playing uh, in the next month. Uh, it's in Austin this weekend, which we're recording March 23rd, so it's opening this Friday, uh, the 25th. And then April 1st, we open in New York. April 8th, we open in San Francisco. April 15th, we are in Portland. Um, and then uh, beyond that, I'm not sure off the top of my head, so check uh, toolatemovie.com. Come check it out, and then send me a tweet or an email or something, and uh, let me know what you think of it. Are you I'm are very you, curious? Are you visiting any of the other cities? Because I know you've been doing a bunch of stuff in LA. Yeah, we're gonna go to New York. Um, we were we were gonna go to Austin because you know Austin is amazing and so much fun. But we have a baby, um, and my wife is the producer on the film, so she's you know super busy with all of this stuff and, and distributing and, and 
promoting, and uh, so we we figured we'd stay home except for New York. We we can't avoid New York. No, no, so we'll be out can't. there. For that. Um, but then after that, yeah, I mean, God, I'd love to go to Portland too. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe we could drag our baby with us. We'll do some some more cities, but we'll see how it goes. And this is the time of year to go to Portland. Springtime in Portland is absolutely beautiful. It's uh, it's yeah. it's when it really is the Rose City. That's my advertisement mm-hmm. for the city of Portland, which I I happen wow. to love as well. No, I love Portland. My uh, cool. my grandfather's um, buried in Portland. Interesting. Yeah, my grandmother maybe. too. My dad. You guys want to talk about that? Yeah, no, you already took. To. You literally already took me to their graves. So. Oh God, that's right, I forgot. So where were? Oh, we were at Ryder's wedding. Ryder's wedding. After Ryder's yeah. wedding, he probably doesn't know this. We went to see the grave sites of Todd's I've relatives. Yeah, uh, yeah, so yeah, it was um, an emotional. Right, so that's a story. Yeah, it that, was. All right, that sounds like a memoir. It's to- oh, I totally forgot yes. about that, Julia. <laughs> I totally forgot. The crazy thing is, it's like we had some time to kill before we had to go to the airport, so we had lunch with our good friend Nicole, who you are obviously friends with as well, and uh, we went to this uh, Jewish cemetery, in, or the Jewish portion of a cemetery, in a weird sort of rundown part of Portland. Um, it was like behind a house, and behind another house, and then behind a chain link fence is a cemetery, and I went and saw... Uh, I spent more time with my father that day than I had in the previous 40 years. <laughs> Jesus. Wow. Yeah. That got so, dark fast. Lifting, There's your memoir. Note. Yeah. Great memoir um, segue attempt by Ryder. So, <laughs> and then it just got derailed into, into, into despair. Okay. Um, yeah, actually, let's... Um, so, I, I feel like Julia is going to have the most to say this week because, Julia... Uh, uh, you actually studied nonfiction and probably spent a lot of time reading memoirs and talking about how to write memoirs. Um, so what did you what did you think of this collection? Um, well, first of all, let's say what it is, because this was not quite what I was expecting. Um, Todd picked it out, so I'm sure he has a lot of intro thoughts as well. But um, this is a collection of this is like the book nerds book nerds book nerd book it's a collection of <laughs> memoirists talking about why they write memoir and all the challenges um involved in that and successes and little fun little backstories and tidbits and it also has a lot of their contact information and twitter handles and stuff so if you are a super fan of a lot of writers you would definitely this is definitely a book that I could see picking up in a bookstore and going down the rabbit hole and just hanging out with for a long time. Um, and it, yes. it, it features it's a also lot. a book I, I imagine that nonfiction classes will just require reading. Yeah. It seems like yeah. sort of a go-to uh, launch for a lot of uh, great discussions. About and, and we should we should note it memoir. features a couple memoirists that we've talked about at some length um, on yes. the show. So it's got yeah. uh, Cheryl Strait has an essay in it. Uh, Darren Strauss, who wrote Half a Life, uh, has an essay in it. Um, I'm sure we've talked a, a little bit about Pat Conroy. Uh, if not, I know I, I tweeted about his, his death recently. He was a wonderful writer. Um, the essayist Megan Dom, who I know we've talked about a little bit, um, and Lamott. Um, I mean, it's just it's sort of a who's who in, um, in today's nonfiction. Nick Flynn, who wrote Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. Um, so there's, there's 20 chapters of it, and each chapter is an individual writer talking about um, their process. Yeah. And I think, you know, I had 
mixed feelings about this. I mean, it on the one hand, this is like, as you note, absolutely my jam. But on the other hand, it's so my jam that I felt like I didn't really need this book because <laughs> a huge part of my life for the last decade has been interviewing writers for the Mark Twain House and and other and other places. And I know Todd's too. And it's like I've heard these conversations so many times that it felt a little bit redundant for me in my personal life. But I think this this book does a really great job of representing all the pain and struggle and different ways of looking at a memoir. And one thing I'm sure we'll get very deeply into is some people say, you know, like, protect your family, don't write about them, don't injure them. And then, of course, the other half, it's like a solid 50-50 split of the other half of the people say, like, do anything you can to tell the truth, throw them under the bus if you have to. I don't even talk to my mom or my brother or my uncle anymore. Um, and I thought it was really nice to see those opinions collected together because at so many writing events, uh, you know, you'll hear a writer say something and then you'll just see, you know, 300 aspiring writers like write it down as if it were absolute right. truth. <laughs> so I feel I feel like what this this book successfully does is show that, you know, and this is such a memoirist thing to say, there is no absolute truth. All of these opinions contradict each other so that makes it both really interesting and renders them somewhat useless if you want to walk away with an absolute truth so that those right. are my feelings but I, yeah I, and i think yeah. a, a book like this isn't aiming for absolute truth i think it's it's aiming for understanding um the process and the process is going to be different for anyone um, totally but you know i i think your point about being the nerds 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 book is so absolutely true. If, if when I was just starting out, this was like the, the I, I have like a shelf of these books Me uh, in my house that are all. Right. It's like letters to a young author, and it's all you know, <laughs> writers yeah. writing to other writers or, or whatever. Um, <laughs> yep. And there, there's a little bit of um, oh, and I should note by the way, uh, Meredith Marin, who's the editor of uh, this book, is a wonderful memoirist herself, and she wrote all the introductions to um, all of these all the essays. She's also uh, one of the top book critics in the United States. Um, and so she's, cool. uh, she's a, a fantastic writer in her own right and a very influential memoirist as well. So it's important to know that she went out and she got these people and she, you know, she edited this book. And I think we've, we often forget about editors of anthologies, but Meredith is uh, mm-hmm. a, a great writer. Um, the, the strange thing for me is that, you know, I, I know uh, a fair number of these people. Um, and so reading about their deepest and darkest processes is sort of weird because um, I I sometimes forget, and and you guys probably have the same experience, that we're all writers. And so all of us that are writers that are friends don't really talk about writing all that much. And then you realize, oh, right, like most of my friends are these fantastic memoirists and novelists and whatnot, um, and they share these same problems that I share. And that's, you know, it's fun to see it. But when when I was just starting out, this would have just been like my therapy appointment. Like, thank God someone else feels the same way that I do. I'm not a complete and total yeah. freak. Um, right. and, and so I think in that way, it's, it's super valuable. Um, I, I think, 
and I hadn't I hadn't thought of it as a writing book until about nine minutes ago when writers said this is a writing book. Crazy. I, That's exactly which, yeah. what we're talking about. Every chapter literally ends with like a boxed section of the text saying tips for how to write a memoir. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever that chapter was about. I, I don't I don't know why like I didn't consider it a writing book. I just thought of it sort of like a I don't know. It's like you know, behind the music with writers. Um but I guess like this is the the sort of thing that writers read to to you know you don't learn how to you don't learn how to write from this you learn the logic from it. You know I think that that's a good point. It it does it does feel kind of it does feel kind of casual, right? Right. It's it, there, there's there's something about this book that it does feel more like interviews with authors or like conversations with authors than I mean even calling them essays to me feels a little more. Um, intentional than i almost feel like most of these memoirs were, were like given a questionnaire or something yes and they're kind of like responding mm-hmm. um which to me was a little bit of a a, a problem like i when, when just based on the title like why we write about ourselves and then the subtitle you know uh 20 memoir memoirists on why they expose themselves like, so I, I i guess i was thinking there was going to be some more sort of hard-hitting investigation of of exposure as a concept and and there was there, there was conversation about that and there's discussion about that but like julia said everybody kind of contradicts each other right. so um and it, in the end like the people that um i kind of expected the most out of like say cheryl Strayed, who we've talked about and we obviously love as a writer um like her chapter felt kind of breezy and it felt like a good q a with cheryl Strayed. It didn't feel like an essay on the art of memoir, which is something that I would assume, based on how incredible of a writer she is, would be you know something that she would delve into deeply. And and so I wonder how they actually approach these writers and 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 what you know because it, it, it does it feels a little surfacey. Ultimately, well, you know to what um, I, I have to tell you, I, if if they if everyone had written those essays. Like, if it weren't breezy and conversational, if they had written about why we write memoir, the same artifice that they have to use in memoir would happen in that essay. Yeah. Not, not to get too meta on it, but that's the thing. You would put up whatever wall you're going to put up to talk about these things. Right. And it would just be a mess. And it would, just it would be, be a, a complete, right. unreadable... Yeah. And so... Yeah. No, I... Yeah, I... I agree. I don't know how else you could do that. Um, and it's and what's so funny is how often you kind of feel like everybody's throwing up their hands and saying, "Don't really know why I do what I do exactly. Just do it." Well, you know, I, it's like we have to just keep writing. Yeah, I love the the couple of people who are like, "I, I don't fucking want to be a memoirist. I just happened to write this one that was really good, or right. this is the only way I could tell the story, or whatever." And those are the ones. That happened to be, not happened to be, I do think it's a related impulse. You know, those are the people with really, really incredible stories that have just like kind of fallen on their faces, like Darren Strauss or um, Edward Stantikat. Mm-hmm. I love her. Have you guys read Brother I'm Dying? Yes. And also uh, Farming the Bones, book. which is an amazing book. Yeah, she's an amazing uh, writer. So, yeah, I mean, I really feel like. And this is also well represented in this in this uh, book. To to really oversimplify it, there's like two major camps of memoirs. There's people who are already writers and artists, and they have a story that has to be told. So then they end up in memoir. And then people who are memoirists and are looking for stories and memoirs like the science of their lives. And right. 
both of those are really well represented. I mean, Megan Dom is such a good example of she talks so openly about like, I'm just an average kind of privileged white girl and that's it. And that's my life. So I'm on a constant hunt for material, <laughs> um, which is <laughs> right. she was interesting. Yeah. So, you know, this, it's it's really nice to hear both of those um, both of those point of view points of view in here. Right. Um, and I think that the Q&A sense of it is actually where a lot of my personal <laughs> fatigue came in because this is, I have a funny story. So um, I was supposed to interview Danny Shapiro. Um, Todd, I assume you know her. She seems like a person you would know. You know her? Yes, I do. So I, I brought her to the Mark Twain house. I was so excited. Um, and I, I was running this annual writer's weekend. This is last year. And I was like thinking, I was already thinking about leaving the Mark Twain house for various reasons, but she was there. She was in the building and like, I was up at my desk preparing something and I was like, I'm going to barf. I'm going to barf today. (laughs) 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 And... I I never ever get sick. I get sick like Remember remember when I had that on our yes. show? Oh, yeah. I I I have let, to, put it, episode. to put it in perspective, until this moment, I had not thrown up in ten years. Oh my so god. So I was like, Oh my god, what is happening? And so like I barfed everywhere all over my own workplace. Oh, and god. it was oh, horrible. It was awful. It was such a nightmare. And Danny Shapiro is like downstairs and I just found another person at this conference to interview her um, because obviously I had to leave because I did not want that to happen to this wonderful woman. So anyway, (laughs) um, Danny Shapiro is one of those people, as are many, many people in this in this uh, collection who have done a million of these events like Q&A experiences in front of aspiring writers um, and people who are going to barf on them. So, you know, I think that's part of the reason it's so breezy. It's like they know what they're in for in this book. Mm -hmm, They know that this is what people want to hear. They know that they're speaking to both people who love their work and to people who are just want to hear tips. Right. And it is really kind of them to to kind of speak to both of those levels at once. And I think, you know, that's really, really nice and really awesome. And there is a lot of good meat in here. But And so, therefore, I think this book is really best for people who live out in, I was going to say Nebraska, but that's where Megan Dom lives. So you can go no, see she, her. But she like, lives in New York. Out now. in the middle of nowhere. Oh, phew. Uh, but who live out in the middle of nowhere and have no opportunity to go to these cool events or AWP or whatever. You know, this book is a substitute for getting to go to the 92nd Street Y and, like, hear Aylet Wyman talk about how she doesn't like her kids or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really cool in that way. It brings you into the room, um, the room where other people are having this conversation, too. I think the thing that I found personally most interesting and most sort of helpful is, um, you know, the how how these other writers have dealt with, um, you know, writing about themselves and writing about their families and the wreckage that sometimes causes. Um, you know, I when I was younger, um, 
I didn't mind uh, hurting people's feelings that I loved when I wrote things, but I wouldn't do it now, you know? Um, like, like it's yeah. just not worth it. <laughs> it's just not worth it, even if it's some truth. Like, I don't, I don't need to... Well, here, I'll give you a good example. Um, I had this essay that was in a book this year called uh, Brief Encounters. It was an essay about um, my dad, actually, um, and about how the only thing that we had in common was baseball. And we used to talk about baseball whenever we'd see each other. And that was all we'd ever talk about. Um, and then he died. And, um, you know, I wrote about it. And I used to, and the thing, I left a thing out of the essay. And the thing I left out of the essay was that my dad died watching a baseball game. And I left it out because it was too personal and it was too much about him. And, um, and the fact was that I knew what baseball game it was and I knew that his favorite team had lost. And at that time in my life, him dying while his favorite baseball team lost a game made me happy in a sort of a sick, fucked up way. <laughs> and then over the course of the next 10 years, 15 years, however long it was, I stopped feeling that way. And I started to hope that he had only lived long enough to see, you know, up till the seventh inning when his favorite team was winning, that they'd come back from behind and took the lead in the seventh inning. Um, because I, you know, I let go of whatever that anger was. And, um, and so, you know, I, I think about those sorts of things now that what I, what I cared about and what I was angry about when I was 30, when I was writing essays is a lot different than what I care about and what I'm angry about at 45. And I think Pat Conroy talked a lot about that, about how he sort of lost his sister, Carol. And then you obviously know that Pat Conroy died, you know, three weeks ago or whatever. And you wonder, did he ever reconcile with his sister? Um, but that's the thing that I think memoir does that as writers, that's that's the unique thing that nonfiction writers have to deal with is that you don't always know the thing that's going to hurt a person's feelings and you are beholden more to the story than they are to their feelings most of the time. And, and that sometimes sucks on an interpersonal level, you know? Totally. I noticed that it seems like siblings relationship, sibling relationships suffer the most in this book. People talk, talk more about losing communication with a brother or a sister because of what they had written than a parent. Mm -hmm. uh, it seemed like right. parents were a little bit more, obviously there were, you know, some of these writers had problems with the, a mom or a dad too, but it seems like they actually cut off connection and conversation with multiple siblings. I think there are two or three, uh, uh, Pat Conroy being one of them. Pat Conroy was the essay that spoke the most to me. Um, I thought his was absolutely brilliant. Um, and he's pretty hardline in the sense, he's one of those uh, write it no matter what people, you know, I and mean, I think he says all's fair and, and love and memoir. And, mm -hmm. um, but he was the one that really, and maybe it's just because it, 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 there was something sort of uh, pure about it, you know? Like, this is a guy who just believes that that writing a memoir is is, is, a, is a mission statement, is a, a declaration, and, and you should never be afraid of that. Um, and, you know, he's somebody who suffered child abuse, and, and so he really comes from the angle of... Yeah. Uh, he has this line, here's what I know, if a story is not told... It's the silence around that untold story that ends up killing people. Um, yeah. And I just, I, you know, was like, oh, my God. And I, I've actually never read any Pat Conroy, but after reading this, I was just, 
there's something. I mean, it's it's well written, but also there's there like I said, there's a purity to his message and um, and a sense of like only you know writing from a very real desperate place where writing is saving you and keeping you alive and keeping your family alive even as it's you know maybe hurting people's feelings or or um, making relationships harder. It's better to to have it out there. And there are they, you know I would say that there are like a third of these essays that. That, that come from a similar stance um, and then there are you know a lot of the other ones that are much more like oh send drafts to family members send drafts to your friends and well, make sure that, that they're okay there's that bit in the in Danny Shapiro's essay actually um, or I'll find it here hold on um, oh where she talks about oh, rewriting yes. that's one of the uh, best uh, well there's this, this bit um, after I gave my mother the galleys and galleys are early versions of a book her therapist called and asked oh, yeah. to meet with her asked me to meet with her what can I say? We're all New York Jews. I gave the therapist a set of galleys so she could read it before my mother did. After she read it, she said she didn't think there was anything that would upset my mother, that it was very fair to her. I had two thoughts. First, that this therapist didn't know my mother at all. And second, that my mother had been wasting her money for years. <laughs> she, hers, was, hers was also one of my favorites. I loved her. She had this great line... You know, because a lot of people sort of make reference to memoirs therapy and they talk about it, you know, like, mm -hmm. and there's a debate. Some people are like, it was a great therapeutic experience. Other people are like, my memoir was not therapy. It was torture, but I got it out. And she has a great, you know, she says, I'm not a believer in memoir as catharsis. It's a misapprehension that readers have that by writing memoir, you're purging yourself of your demons. Writing memoir has the opposite effect. It embeds your story deep inside you. It mediates the relationship between the present and the past by freezing a moment in time. Oh, I thought that yeah. was beautiful. And I've never written a memoir, so I don't, you know, it's not like I can comment on whether she's right or wrong, but that was just suddenly a fresh way of thinking about this, this process that made my brain go, ooh, that's cool. Right. Well, don't you think, Julia, when you're writing, I mean, when you're writing essays, are, are you revealing your truest self or are you like Sandra Singlow? who says, you know, and I, and Cheryl Strayed says this too in the book, that you don't know me from reading my... Right. my that there's essays. something performative about it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's more true. I, I think, you know, it's such an act of choice and point of view, especially as, you know, people age and you get to be so much more choosy about what stories you're telling. You know, a 14-year-old writing an essay about the most important day of their life is different than a 55-year-old selecting you know, what they're going to be taking on. Right. So, yeah, I think part of the tension is knowing that people will think that it's your full self and that's all there is to you. But I don't think that any memoirist, well, I don't know, but I've never felt like, okay, this is it. My whole self is represented in this eight to <laughs> ten page essay. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Uh, one of my favorites was was Darren Strauss's, and I, you know, I kind of forgot about that book. That was like our third or fourth episode. Yeah. And yeah. he just seems in such admirable pain at all times that I, I just fucking feel for the guy. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, he's he a says, great writer. His novels are fantastic too. Yeah. He says. I know I did my best to be authentic, and I know I really was honest. Those are the things I stand by. I don't know about the art of it. I'm a terrible judge of my own work after I'm done with it, but I'm proud of the book. 
And it's just so mm. honest. It just feels like exactly what the book was meant to be was I want to tell this one story, nothing else. I don't want to, he says, like, I don't want to write about my marriage. I don't want to write about my kids. But I thought this would be a 30-page book, and it ended up being a 200-page book, and that's it. And I think there's something so admirable about that. You know, he's, like, really yeah. creating a piece of art rather than spilling his guts. Although, of course, he had to spill his guts to create that thing. Mm-hmm. So I really mm-hmm. loved his sad little piece. Poor Darren Strauss. <laughs> I love you, Darren Strauss. I know you're going to listen to this. You're you're great. Darren Strauss, Darren Strauss <laughs> is awesome. Um, and, and I have to say, there's there's a, a bit in uh, Darren Strauss's essay where he says where he talks about the editors saying, "Hey, you got to take this part out. It makes you look bad." Oh yeah. And I mean, like that. I can't believe. That's but I can't believe they said that because that's like, <laughs> oh, I remember yeah. us talking about that moment in the book. Like, I remember the three of us being like, this is what made the book great because mm-hmm. it really is. It's one of the earliest moments in the book that you're like, oh God, this guy's being so honest. It's it's when he killed mm-hmm. a girl accidentally with his car and then he starts flirting with girls that pull up during this sort of, yeah. you know, the accident site afterwards. And I remember the three of us being like, it's so honest because I could totally see myself doing that. Maybe, you know, you keep, you're putting yourself in these impossible situations situations and and that's what he that's how he draws you in with that that empathy it's, mm-hmm. it, it creates that empathy out of that weird weird reaction oh yeah yeah and i think i think this idea that um that memoirists write something to make themselves look good is is not i, I don't think it's as current a thought as it used to be i mean i, I think yeah. about um my good friend uh, Robert Berge, uh, whose memoir Liar is out right now. And I, in fact, I had the weird experience of listening to him on NPR today and telling a story that tangentially involved me and thinking, oh, this is this is a strange sort of meta experience. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Rob's memoir Liar is about his, you know, his life as um, an addict and also as um, someone with mental illness and um, all these multiple personal and emotional traumas um, and all this stuff. And I mean, it's 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 a series of the worst things that could ever happen to a person written in a book. And he doesn't he doesn't come off looking like like a great guy. Um, He comes off looking like a person who's had some real problems and has not always made the best choices in his life. And, um, you know, I, I think there is. There's a school of memoirs now that is about trauma and is about bad decision making um, that have been successful when they when they are successful because of that level of honesty that readers can look at their own lives and say, you know, either I've been in that situation or if I had turned right instead of turning left, I would have been in that exact same place and that's how I would have ended up. And people like that. People find for themselves some, some kind of catharsis even if the the reader or if the writer doesn't. And on this interview in NPR today, uh, Rob was asked basically if he felt catharsis from it. And he said, no, you know, that <laughs> in fact, the publication of the book a week beforehand, which was just, you know, a couple weeks ago, he called his publisher and was like, you can't release this book. I don't want oh, anyone gosh. to read it. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's not, that's not unlike what, half the writers in here say like literally like half the megan dom talks about when she's writing a piece that she vacillates between excitement and queasiness and that it basically goes like that until it's out into the world um 
but it's that's that strange compulsion I think we have as nonfiction writers is okay I'm going to show you this thing um, and oftentimes that thing is something bad or something traumatic and then it's going to be out of me and it's going to be out into the world um, but what you don't understand is that when once it's out of you it's out into the world you don't get to stop talking about it no. <laughs> and so it it continues that cycle in a way and I, I think that's um, I think that's that's the unique challenge of these sort of personal event memoirs versus what Megan Dom does, which a lot of times is she's writing about, um, you know, she, she doesn't write memoirs as much as she writes essays. Um, but like Cheryl Strayed and Danny Shapiro, who are writing about these, you know, these big emotional moments of their life, good, bad, or otherwise, um, those stories now belong to the world and you have to share that thing with them. And I think that's that's hard for some people. I know it's hard for Rob, um, but it, yeah. you know, I, I think that's the difference between writing fiction and writing nonfiction. Well, one of the things that well, struck me is that the the number one advice that seems like all of these people agreed on is um, write the first draft as if it's not going to be published. It seems like everybody said you just got to write it first. You can always cut out later. But like I, I would say about four or five people gave that as a tip or a part of their advice. Just don't worry about where it's going to end up. Don't worry about the question of whether you should or should not. Just write it first and then you can always cut it later. Um, everybody said that across the board. I mean, obviously, if you feel this compulsion to write, if somebody like Rob needed to, to write this, it's better to have written it. You can decide later to publish it or not, and hopefully right. not the week it's getting published, and you've already been paid, like Rob's case. <laughs> but, you know, that I, 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 I thought that was interesting because I definitely stopped myself writing something that is truthful or honest or from a place of, uh, you know, nonfiction uh, be before I've even gotten to the keyboard. And, yeah. and so it was inspiring to think, you know what, I should write this down because it is true that I've had the thought, like, wish I had diaries or journals or I, think, I wish I had my perspective from 10, 15, 20 years ago written down somewhere, even if I had never published it, which would have been a disaster in so many cases, in all cases, probably, <laughs> um, you know, the idea that I would have had this written down somewhere is pretty cool. And that, that was inspiring because I'm, I'm definitely of the camp, like, I'm going to wait till people are dead before I write anything right. about my life. I'm, yeah, I'm not and gonna, I think, you know, I think that yeah. that sense, <laughs> I that should have sen done that. <laughs> That sense of waiting at, or that sense of writing something and being okay with just throwing it out is something that's becoming ever more alien. Here's my kids today thing. It's like we don't think of, <laughs> we don't think of writing a long Facebook note or a blog post or whatever as publishing, but that's absolutely what it is. You know, you're writing your, yep. your little thing and you're publishing it yourself, you know, and you know, what I think about is like, how many of my good stories am I not even putting onto that back burner to simmer or become part of a larger narrative? Because I do, you know, engage so much on, on social media. Um, it, it's really yeah. strange to think that like, we're basically ready to instantly publish at all times. Um, yeah. And I, that, so I love that part back. of this book, the people that tapped into that. Cause I, I yeah. let, um, I, uh, what's her name? Um, I let, um, what's her last name? Waldman. Waldman. 
and um, and who else? and and Megan Dom. They were they were it was some of the younger ish people. I mean, not everybody is is everyone's pretty much born before nineteen seventy five ish in this book, uh, which is fascinating. Yeah. They put their Ed, birth dates Edmund before every White, chapter. Edmund White and Pat Conroy, I think, are the two oldest. oldest. Ones. But it was it was interesting to see that the younger people were addressing this issue of Twitter and social media and self-publishing sort of instantaneously. I thought that was, because that's, that is changing all the rules about memoir and nonfiction, isn't it? You know, and this Mm -hmm. is a whole, this is a big tangent, but you know, it's not so much, I would say Twitter and Facebook that have like truly changed the genre, but it's thinky pieces like Salon and Slate. You know, the right. the thirst and the hunger for quick exo Jane, it happened to me style stories is just so crazy that it feels like a whole generation of good stories is just being like churned out really quickly and has really to me diminished the genre and made me much less interested in writing about myself. Um, because everybody's doing it. It it feels less right. like I- art and more like a process ahead, no, no one's gonna die and say oh i wish i'd read more response pieces yes. <laughs> you know <laughs> and that yeah. that's what that's what it is really um i mean we talked about this before i think we talked about it maybe in relation to that essay chris uh O'Foot wrote my my father the pornographer that's now yeah. a book um but uh, you know i i think um I think introspection uh, doesn't wait for the youth. You know what I mean? Like when you're young, and this is what I this is what I meant about things I wrote when I was younger. Um, and you know, fortunately, when I was younger, there wasn't really the internet, um, but I did have a newspaper column. Um, <laughs> that um, you know, when you're young, you think the emotions that you have are going to be the emotions that you have forever, and you think that you want that opinion out there into the world forever. And that's not that's not always true. And I think waiting a little bit to talk about things um, at least provides some larger emotional context to the way that you're feeling. I'm not saying don't write blogs and don't tweet and, and don't push it up on Facebook because then what would I do all day? Um, but I guess what I'm saying and what I think this book sort of edifies is distilling an experience many years after it happens um, gives it more depth than doing it right when it happens. I mean, the great example, just in general nonfiction, is a book like Columbine, right? Um, where, you know, he it took him 10 years to write the book, and in that time, he found out much of the larger truths versus some of the other books that came out about Columbine beforehand that had none of them. I mean, that's, that's topical nonfiction versus memoir, but it's still that same sense of exploration that only time can provide you. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, I think this book does a good job of basically saying sit and think <laughs> you know um and and I, I think that's that's an important aspect of it or or wait for something really interesting to happen although what who was it that said um maybe it was megan don uh who said you know it's not like i you know fought in Jima, or maybe that was that was someone else that was a, a guy who said that um i don't remember which one but you know a lot of memoirs today that are coming out aren't really about things that are terribly interesting other than just that person's life. Um, and if you're a good enough writer, you can make your life fascinating provided something interesting happens in it, and which, you know, seems like what a lot of these folks are saying. Twitter is the death of 
the death of great writing or not in so many ways <laughs> i agree with, i do think that man i think that that, that if 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 uh, i think it was isla who said the the thing about like how many memoirs have gone down the drain because it was ended up being a twitter quote and i think it's true like i think that you know twitter serves comedians best it serves promotion best it serves quippy sort of one-liners best and that's fine but um you know if the i like self-publishing which is you know what we're talking about blogs twitter social media um i really feel like like i don't know i mean having been through it myself you know i my wife and i just had this moment where for some reason she was looking back at old facebook updates that we had done six or seven years ago when facebook was still sort of this new fun thing that you did to connect with all your friends and she was like who is this person sharing all this shit and it was true like back then it was like yeah everything i do is worth you know and um i have to say like i feel a lot better the less i do that um yeah you know and i i i think it's a great communication for directing people to your writing or directing people to things but as a form of like here's how i'm feeling today or this is what i was just thinking like for me it's just withered it feels really hollow and the ego boost that i get from it like i realize that i'm addicted to the um you know the thumbs up thing like the oh let me check my inbox let me check how many people like this thing or it's like oh (laughs) it's just not i just hate that feeling i hate that sense of distraction and sense of neediness that comes from that well, you, you know what the thing is, I think, for um, memoirists with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all that shit, um, is I don't spoil your memoir, <laughs> you know, um, save it like like, you know, to be perfectly honest, you know, what I share on social media is is, you know, it's usually jokes. <laughs> um, it's it's right. very little about my real life. I mean, yeah. no one could glean anything from my real life from my social media other than the fact that I think Ted Cruz is the Antichrist, and I think that the Oakland A's are going to have a good season. Right. Um, and that I love my wife, and I like to take pictures of her cakes. <laughs> and sh- sharing love is not a bad thing, but, you know, I don't talk about my fears and anxieties in a real way, you know? Right. Because mm-hmm. for me as a as a professional writer, as a novelist who it's a year or two between books right um sometimes longer part of it is um to keep a connection with the people that read my work if i were a non-fiction writer however i mean other than the non-fiction i do write but if i were writing memoirs uh, versus just essays and stuff um man i wouldn't share shit <laughs> i wouldn't mm-hmm. share anything about my real life well, because part, part of that is because why, why do it well part of that is also just when you think about the way that you read social media like i read i check in on facebook i mean all the all the time right like that but it's because i'm bored it's because i want something that's going to take less than five minutes of my time and you know yeah it's nice to like check in on like what people are doing and what friends are up to and like get the latest sort of tidbit but when you think about the experience of reading a memoir living with somebody for an entire Mm -hmm. book and like being welcomed into whatever narrative uh version of their memory or their life that they're giving you um that's such a you know the attenuation of your focus and 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 the sharing of that it's it's just different and you can't expect to get that when you 
are posting things to social media. It never will be. It'll yeah. never be that. Um, and and I, I, I don't want to lose that in our culture, and I'm afraid we are, all of us. You know, we're all contributing to, like you're saying, like the response pieces, the, you know, and that's why, you know, one of the, the first years that we did this show, um, um, uh, I talked about... Um, uh, uh, whoa! Wow, I'm totally blanking on um, what's the long form journalist online? Um, uh, Atavist. Atavist. Like that's why I picked that as my year of the, the book of the year. Do you remember that? Like because yeah. for me it was it was like the you know and unfortunately that the Atavist has gone through so many phases, but they're still doing long form journalism every once in a while, and I'm so happy because it's like in this age and and, and of course the way that we receive our 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 reading. We're, we're losing the sense of like sit with this for a while spend some time mm-hmm. with it you know it might take you a week to read this one article but it's worth it i just yeah and i think I it's i don't want to lose that it's worth saying that there are so many good writers and journalists and publications still really committed to that you know it's just watching the readership kind of dribble their time away to other places is what's disturbing. I mean, here's the best example. Yeah, I guess I'm talking more about readership. I mean, myself included, you know, I don't choose to read those things. I find, I find it harder and harder to sit somewhere and read a book. Um, so depressing because it's always been one of my favorite activities. But I mean, you have, you have bigger challenges now because you know, you have a kid and, and that, that two hours of quiet that you might want to have a sustained period of reading. Oh, you might want to go to sleep. (laughs) <laughs> you yeah. know and or yeah. you might want to write or you might want to spend time with your wife or you might want to do whatever it, that thing is right. um did you guys did either of you watch um and it's on hbo right now the documentary about nora efron speaking of memoir no. i want to see it it's okay. a it's a wonderful documentary um and you know she was a great uh journalist and essayist in addition to being um a wonderful screenwriter and director and filmmaker um, but her uh, her mother had been a screenwriter and her father had been a screenwriter as well. And her mother had said to her, and uh, she had a fraught relationship with her mother, that everything is copy. And that's actually the name of the documentary, Everything is oh, Copy. Yeah. Which in essence is that, you know, everything that happens to you in your life you can use in your art. Um, and the notable thing was that as she was dying, she didn't tell anybody. Mm. Um, she didn't her closest friends found out she was about to die like you know three days before she was about to die oh, she died when she was sick um and there's this wonderful moment uh, in the documentary where one of her friends um says you know she determined at the end that not everything is copied that some things still belong to you and you know, I, I, that was that was a really palpable experience for me, sitting in bed crying, watching the Nora Ephron documentary, as I actually, in fact, tweeted uh, as it happened, um, <laughs> that here was this person who had mined, and they, they did a great example of showing things that she had put in films, in fact, that she had written about earlier in her personal essays. Um, that this, At the end, she didn't want to share with the world the most personal thing. And that's the battle, right? That's the battle of being an artist whose entire life is out in the open is what do you finally decide is not up for public consumption? What do you finally decide is not art? Um, And if if the last thing that it happens to be is your death, I I think you've made a mistake. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. you got it. You got to keep some things Mm -hmm. out. 
I believe. Wow. Don't you guys? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> when I think about, you know, how memoirists engage with their own work and rework and think about their memories, one of the things that I often think about, I'm sure I've mentioned it before, is um, Francine Prose wrote this amazing book about Anne Frank and something that I feel like no one knows, uh, which is that Anne Frank, she wrote her diaries and then you know, shortly before her death, she went back and she edited her own diaries as if basically as if preparing them for a publication. I mean, obviously, she's just sitting there. That's how she's spending her time. She was so authorally engaged. So she even Anne Frank with obviously no, no, you know, she's not thinking I'm going to go fucking publish this in Salon next weekend, you know, (laughs) Uh, like she did she did the work you know she's 14 15 years old the understatement of the year yeah uh but she was she cared enough about the quality of the writing and the quality of the memory and telling the story right that her the diaries as they are published are edited two times they're edited by herself and then they're edited as i think most people know very lightly by her father um but like to right. me that that's a writer. You know what I mean? That's a writer. You've got your life's work and you still edit it. You still give it the time and the thought that it deserves. Um so yeah, I think I got even darker than you, Todd. So congrats <laughs> to me. Little Holocaust humor. A little bit. Just for People you. People love it. People love it. Thanks. I It's good for the Jews. Uh well, that seems like a good place to end it, shall we? The book is Why We Write About Ourselves, 20 Memoirists on Why They Expose Themselves and Others in the Name of Literature, edited by Meredith Moran. Moran? Or Moran. Meredith Marin. Also Marin. Meredith Marin edited it. Marin. I would spell that M-A-R-I-N if I were her. Wow. But, all right. I'm not. Thank you, Ritter. <laughs> I know. Everyone spells my name R-Y-D-E-R, and probably rightfully so. If I were him. <laughs> oh, yeah. God. If, if I were me, I'd tell my parents and my grandparents to change the spelling of my so, name. So, yeah, R-Y-D-E-R. Uh, yeah, you only got one D, man. Yeah. You need that second D. <laughs> don't, don't make me talk about how people mispronounce my name. Todd. Todd. <laughs> how do they say it again? Todd. I'm well, there's a difference. Some people say Todd, like it's my name, and then some people say Todd, which is not my name. There's no difference. You are you are so delusional. You are so delusional. Yeah, I really am. All right, it's we'll true. save it up, write a memoir about it, and then talk to us about it in 30 years. 